1 Peter chapter 2. We'll have a word of prayer. Now, Heavenly Father, we just come into your presence again. We just acknowledge one more time that we can't make sense of this word unless your Holy Spirit interprets these truths which are spiritually discerned to our hearts. So help us, Father. We are weak. We are sinners apart from your good grace. Nothing good dwells in us. So we're going to need a helping hand. So we just ask humbly, please assist us. We don't know anything. We don't come to the text with any kind of knowledge of our own, but we come to it with your help to see it through your understanding that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen. Arrests and confrontations between police and protesters continued Friday as Occupy Wall Street, the movement, has spread to cities across the U.S. Police in riot gear arrested dozens of protesters in Denver early Friday, breaking up their camp and herding others away from the park where they had been based for about three weeks while many others have been taken into custody in lower Manhattan, New York, police clashed with Occupy Wall Street protesters after a planned evacuation of their camp was called off. Protesters in various cities are being arrested for disorderly conduct, drug possession, public intoxication, obstructing businesses and traffic flow, harassment, littering, loitering, and trespassing. Well, here in second, the second chapter of 1 Peter, the Bible suggests a better way to express ourselves in the face of any frustration or discontent we might have personally or in the life that we live in society. The Bible will say, Here's how to respond. Live a good life. Let people see the moral superiority of a life connected to the Most High God. Live above reproach. This is how you are to handle your frustrations in the world. Live above reproach. No matter who's driving the bus, your moral character stays consistent with the God you serve. Now, as Christians, when your name comes up in public, nobody should be able to say one bad word about you. Your good reputation should precede you. And this is how we are to handle the stresses that come to us in society as Christians. And somebody brings up your name in public, let's call you John. And if your name is John, all the Johns, please raise your hand. We, we thank you for being the illustration for the world. <laughs> and if your last name is Doe, really, we really, we applaud you. John, your name comes up. Somebody should say, that's a law-abiding citizen, self-controlled, kind, Loving, clean in the lips, clean in the life, peace-loving, humble, helpful, honest, a respecter of authority. Anything less, no matter what the circumstances are, is inconsistent with the character of our Heavenly Father and incompatible with his will for his children, and most unhelpful when it comes to leading anybody to the truth of the gospel, the love of Jesus Christ, and eternal life that Jesus Christ promises anyone who will trust in him. So up until now, for context, Peter has told us who Christ is and all the wonderful blessings that we have because of our connection to him. In short, he's saying that he's the foundation of your lives, and Christians are the walls that come up, the very extension of Jesus' life 
on this earth. His words, his teaching, his love, his character, his compassion for the lost. We are, as it were, his hands, his feet, his mouthpiece to a lost and dying world. And so now the transition here, uh, here in uh, chapter 2 from verse 11 on until chapter 4 is a new section that is really telling the Christian how he and she must live in society, how this good life translates in community, in respect to government, in the workplace, in the marriage, and in the family. This is the section that comes before us this morning. So Peter's already told them that they must live with reverence and fear because they're being observed by God. But God isn't the only one watching. And that's going to be his point now as we pick up here in chapter 2 at verse 11. God isn't the only one watching you. Unbelievers are watching you. And listen, the honor or dishonor of God is determined by how outsiders view the deeds of his people. Let's say that one more time. It's pretty important. It's kind of the thesis statement for this long chunk that I'm going to about to read. The honor or dishonor of your God, the God of the Bible, the honor or dishonor of God is determined by how outsiders view the deeds of his people. Verse 11, dear friends, I urge you, as aliens, foreigners, strangers in this world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, the unbelievers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him, God, to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil Live as servants or slaves of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your master with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he's conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. As it says in Isaiah chapter 53, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so we conclude this text or our consideration this morning. Three ideas I want to call your attention to this morning as we walk through this passage. Number one, if you're taking notes, an abstinence that wins souls. Number two, a submission that's all about freedom. And thirdly, a patience that does not retaliate. Let's talk about these things. 
Here's a paraphrase of the first little section that we've entitled an abstinence, meaning to say no to yourself, uh, that wins souls, that impacts others. Here's the paraphrase. Friends, I plead with you as visitors here in this life to say no to your sinful desires, to stand against temptation that wages war against you and your new life in Christ. Live such unbelievably good lives that even unbelievers who can't stand you or Christianity will be touched and converted so that when he appears, they will be praising God instead of cowering in his presence. So as I said, an abstinence that wins souls. Have you ever thought of it this way? Dying to self so that others might live. This is the point. Now, notice he says friends. And I like this. Proverbs 27 and verse 6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. In other words, you know, a friend will tell you the hard truth, the thing that you don't want to hear, the thing that's a little awkward, the thing that might hurt, but it's true nonetheless. He says a friend can be dependent. And so he's got some hard things to say about, hey, guys, you need to start saying no to yourself and abstaining from these sinful desires that war against you. Hey, you, you in this sin-filled world, you're going to need to submit yourself. You're going to have to live like Jesus who didn't retaliate, but kept his heart sweet. That even when they're killing him, he's like, forgive them, Father. They don't really know what they're doing. So he's got a tall order for you and for me. And so he prefaces the whole thing by, by saying, uh, friends, listen to me. I'm your friend. I'm going to tell you some things that are going to be a little hard to swallow right now. But I'm your friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so what is he saying? He's saying if we Christians are to have any hope of impacting a world in need, we must begin in our own hearts. Our lives must validate our words. I used the example a couple weeks ago about a, a guy singing the praises of AA. The only problem is you can smell alcohol on his breath. His actions invalidated all the praise for the AA program. The last thing I would want to do is go to an AA program with some guy who is touting all its wonderful benefits and can't keep sober, can't abstain. It's just ridiculous. And so he's going to say, you know, if you're going to be light in this world, the first obligation is in your own heart. Stop, start, rather, saying no. Stop sinning. There's a guy that I heard about who's sharing the gospel while smoking pot and sleeping with his girlfriend. Can I just say, he's not here right now, but can I just say to him, and he doesn't attend our church, by the way. That's a joke. It's a joke. The joke's on you, sir. When out of your mouth is, oh, I'm a Christian, and look at my bumper sticker, and I read a Bible, and I carry a big, big King James Version, or whatever it is, and you can't tell yourself no. Don't be telling me how to live my life and all about the glory of God and you're connected to the Most High God who spins the worlds in orbit and you can't even tell yourself no. It's ridiculous. So Peter says, come on. They're watching you. You have a moral obligation to them to tell yourself no. It's really quiet in here. <laughs> it makes me a little nervous. Well, what's going on here? Well, remember Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's really wooed by this Jesus. And he comes to him at night secretly. He doesn't want all his friends to know. 
And the Lord says to him, listen, Nicodemus, you're going about this the wrong way, trying to be good, trying to be good. He said, no, that's never going to happen. You can't be good enough. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus, a new life has to happen. And he says, you've got to be born again. That's where the phrase comes from. John chapter 3, verse 3. You're going to be born again. The Holy Spirit has to come inside and, and, and deposit life from heaven to reconnect you with the source, God. Now you're going to have a new nature. You're going to be resurrected to new life inside, and you will start to notice, oh my, things are different in here. There's two of me now, and that's really how it goes. And so we start to notice right away that we're marching to a beat of a different drummer and we have friction in the world. Therefore, he says, hey, look, because of your Christian faith, you're kind of like a foreigner. The world doesn't get you. They live by a whole different system. So you're not really at home in the world. But boom, now, you're also a stranger where? In your own heart. In your own heart, you will want to serve God and do the right thing and you will find something really crazy. Your own thoughts against you, your own impulses coming from you. You think it's even you because you share the same brain. But inside of you has been imparted new life, a new nature, a new man. Colossians chapter 3, Paul compares and contrasts these two natures. Listen to what he says. He says, the sinful nature inside of you desires what is contrary to the spirit who also lives inside you now that you're a believer and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature these two natures i'm quoting the word of god are in conflict with one another so that is the reason you have trouble doing what you'd like that is galatians chapter 5 and verse 17 A new person, a new man. So the new man, the nature, when you believe, suddenly you have a new identity. Colossians even calls it a new, in the Greek, anthropos. There's a new man. And he compares it to the old man. The new man is all about compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience bearing with each other and forgiving whatever grievances we may have against one another, forgiving as the Lord forgives us. And over all these virtues, we put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness, All of these things, that's what the new person's all about. Bowing to God instead of bowing to self. Embracing absolute truth instead of relative truth that's convenient and defined by my own self. Now, the old self, the captain of his own destiny, he's all about sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming, Paul writes. You used to walk in these ways because that was your nature. Some more self-controlled than others, but still. But now you must rid yourselves of all these from the old man, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. And so the sad and shocking reality is that we have two natures at war with one another inside our body. Now, this truth caused even the great Apostle Paul dismay. Listen to a paraphrase of Romans 7, verse 15 and following. I don't understand myself. I don't get me or my actions. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. The very thing I hate. It's like it's not even me doing those things. It's like sin that lives in me. So I find this struggle in me at all times. When I want to do good, guess what? Evil is right there with me. For in my inner heart, 
I want to do what God wants to please him. But I see another power that shares the same space. It lives inside me, waging war against my thoughts, wanting to take me prisoner to make me sin. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this mad, crazy tug of war, this body of death? Thanks be to God who gives us a savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the way he saves us is upon faith, he breathes life and puts God's nature, the divine nature inside you so that you can deal with that beast and reckon it dead. Listen to the intensity, the the description of the evil nature that lives inside me and you. It's not simply that your old nature is disinterested in the things of God, though it is true that it wants nothing to do. But it's not simply that it's opposed. It's not simply that it's contrary to his will and to his word and to glory to God. It wages war. It's a fight to the death. It's saying, I'm not going down without a fierce and bloody battle. Are you ready? Who's the enemy? D.L. Moody said, I've got more troubles with D.L. Moody than with any known living person on the face (laughs) of the planet. The Lord appears to Cain. Says, Cain, what up with you, man? What's your problem? You look like you're going to kill somebody. And he says, the Lord says to him, if you just do good, there'll be no problems. But if you're open to evil, man, sin is crouching at your door. It wants to have you. The word is to devour, to control you. But he says to Cain, the Lord, and he says to every sinner in his likeness, which we all are before Christ comes into our heart, he says, but you must master it. It wants to master you. Do you not hear that voice? Do you not? One time in this building, I'm sharing the faith with somebody after a service, eyeball to eyeball. And he's right there on the edge of making a decision for Christ. And I can see it, the war going on. He's right there on the edge. And I said, you know what? I can hear that. And he goes, you can. And I said, yeah, that voice that's going, don't do it. (laughs) And he goes, well, not going to lie. But that's what I'm hearing. Of course you're hearing that. No more lusting. No more craning the head. No more secret little sinning here and there. No more getting up when I want to get up. No more saying, hey, I'll go to church if I want to go to church. I'll do all my weekend when I want to do. Do you realize, person, flesh speaking, do you realize what you're signing up for? You're signing up for our death. Exactly. Jesus said, no man comes to me except he deny that bad boy's voice, pick up a cross and put that beast where he belongs to death and then follow me by a life of faith, living and relying on the word of God, being filled with the Holy Spirit, setting your minds on things above. And then he says, I will give you power, but there's no way you're going to do it without my help. I... I think of sermon illustrations everywhere. I saw the vacuum cleaner sitting out, and I, re- <laughs> I, I realized you need two things to make that thing work. You need an outside power source, and you need somebody to man the machine. You need two things. You need God to supply the strength and the power, but you need a will that says, I abstain. I abstain. And the second you say, if you're a believer, I abstain, he says, here's your power. It doesn't come from you. It's not your willpower. I'm going to change my life. No, you're not. 
You need his power. And he says he will give that power to anybody who comes to him. The Bible says we must lay aside the old man, the old self, with its sinful practices and replace it with the new man, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator, Colossians 3 and verse 9. I quoted this in prayer this morning for the grace of God that we all sing about and love, amazing grace. Here's a facet that we don't often sing about. It teaches us to say no to ourselves and ungodliness and worldly passion and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we're waiting for Jesus Christ. And so that's what he says. He says, apekomai. That's the Greek word for abstain. It means to hold yourself back, to constrain yourself, to tell yourself no, to refuse the prompt. And then he says, as you do that, you can live the good life. And when people see the transformation and the power that you have, self-mastery to control and, 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 to, and to be free from the tyranny of self. When people see that, they're impacted. They're changed, he says. You died to yourself so that Christ can shine through you and impact others along the way. So our ability to say no to self and live good lives really will wake somebody up from the dead in God's grace. Um, He's saying, really, let the unbelieving scoffers around you see the good. You abstain, live a good life, and they will see what God can do for a person's heart and life so that they too can come to live with clear purpose and clarity, to showcase contentment and joy, independent of what you're going through. That's powerful. People see, when we, when we were going through cancer, I had cancer 10 years ago. I'm perfectly cancer-free right now. I had a Hodgkin's lymphoma and underwent a bone marrow transplant, and the Lord was kind, and I'm fine now. But we walked through that with a lot of peace. And I was around a lot of unbelievers, and they asked, what is that peace you have? I want that peace. He says, abstain not only to your passion, but abstain to a worldly way of reacting with anxiety. Abstain from that. Say no to that. And yes, to God and his peace. And when they see sweet mercy instead of bitter vengeance in your life, when they see you blessing people who are cursing you, when they see the peace in the midst of your troubles, they're going to want the Lord. And they'll know that you're talking something really genuine in your own heart and life. Peter Peter is echoing Jesus' ideas here from the Sermon on the Mount. He says, when your boss asks you to go to clean lobby number one on the first floor, and you say, you know what, boss, I got some extra time. How about I do lobby number one and lobby number two? How about that? The boss goes, excuse me? How about when somebody takes your iPhone, you throw in the iPod? Jesus said, hey, you forgot something. You got my iPhone. It was said my iPod was right next to it. Here you go. You must really need this. Here you go. When your enemy is in a bind, you help him out. When someone's rude to you, you're polite in return. When someone excludes you, you include them. And this is what Peter's saying. You'll impact them. They will be converted. And on that great day, they will be praising God with us because they saw the light of Christ in his child. Because you, apekomai, you said no, you abstained, and you let the power of the Holy Spirit lived through you. They saw him in you and converted. It's amazing power. I heard this wonderful testimony of a man who now is a Christian. 
He was an attendant in a laundromat. There was a college student, a Christian young woman, who used the laundromat. And he noticed, number one, that every time she used the dryer, she cleaned the lint screen out every single time. And as an attendant, it was his job to do that. So he just noticed that, that he always cleans up after everybody else except this young lady who does it herself. And then she started cleaning up other people's messes. He just noticed that. They would leave a mess and she would straighten it up and clean up after herself. And she was just consistent. She wouldn't step over the garbage. She would pick it up. He gives this testimony in churches. I became a Christian because a young woman was acting so out of the ordinary that I asked her about herself. She invited me to church. I heard the gospel and I received Christ as Lord. This is what the Bible's talking about. Please do not just go into a laundromat and say, hey, sinner, wake up. You need Jesus, man. <laughs> Amen? There's nothing wrong with telling a sinner to wake up that they need Jesus, but it'd be really nice if they saw a little transformation and love out of your life, evidence that your words are grounded in life-changing truth. Nobody in the world wants another religion. Nobody. We don't want more rules and regulations. We've got enough to do. We're not interested in another new philosophy. We want transformation. We want living water to quench the longing. And speaking of living water, <laughs> gets a little dry up here. We want the truth. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying abstain. Not only because it'll bless you, because it can save somebody else. Now, number two, Peter gets specific here uh, a little bit now what it means to live good lives in society. So Peter goes from something we humans dislike, like saying no to ourselves, to something most people hate, like the idea of submitting to authority. Ironic, isn't that bumper sticker that says, question authority, right? So my thought is, sir, would that include questioning your authority to tell me that I should question authority? <laughs> I don't know if you're, did you follow that? You know, they're commanding us, resist authority. All right, uh, can we resist your authority telling us to resist authority? Uh, just your wife will explain it on the way home. All right. Moving on. I thought that was very clever, but here's a submission now that's all about freedom. And by the way, folks, the prodigal son, he finds freedom when he yields to his father's will. Now, here's a paraphrase about this submitting. In consideration of how our behavior reflects on God, we need to submit ourselves to authority whether it's the president, the government, the police, whatever structure. God's idea for government is to punish the bad guys and commend the good guys. So behave well. It's God's will and desire for your good reputation for excellence to silence your critics. Here's a great comment from a Bible scholar, Karen Jobes, that sums this up. It may be tempting for Christians, believers, especially in unbelieving societies, to see their loyalty to Christ as a license for rebelling against the ungodly authorities who govern them. But it's God's will that Christians are subordinate to secular authorities Christians known for their goodness and helpfulness rather than their rebelliousness and troublemaking. Now, Peter's saying just the opposite of Bonnie Raitt's hit, let's give him something to talk about. Peter is saying, how about let's not? 
give them something to talk about. Warren Wiersbe, this about submission. Submission does not mean slavery or subjugation, but simply the recognition of God's authority in our lives and to respect the institutions he's put in place. So notice, first of all, he calls for Christians in society to have a healthy respect for authority for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake, I'm asking you to do this. For how your behavior will reflect on God, the God you love and who loves you and laid down his life. I was on that cross for six hours for you, for his sake. Can you do this hard thing for his sake? It's one thing to submit out of duty. It's another thing to submit out of devotion. That's why he says, look, I know this is going to be hard, but I know you can do it for him because his honor is on the line. If you're a rebel, you despise authority, you're always getting into trouble, and you're known for your critical, uh, mean-spirited, rebellious nature. He says, that reflects on God. He says, so for his sake, come under authority, imperfect as it is. Who's the authority there that he's saying you should honor? Nero, the guy who wants to purge Rome of all of us and light us up as candles for his nighttime events in his backyard gardens. This is the context for which the Spirit is saying, you need to submit and come under and respect. Now, let's imagine this scenario. Instead of Occupy Wall Street, let's call it Occupy Rome, Protesters have gathered on Appian Way instead of Wall Street, and they're angrily chanting and trashing the streets, harassing people, obstructing businesses and the flow of traffic and creating disorder and chaos. And Nero says, I'm ordering a smackdown. Go round up those rebel rousers. Investigate them. Who are they? What are they up to? I wouldn't be surprised if it's those born-againers. They're against everything we do. So the, the thugs go out. They return with an interesting report for Nero. Who was it? It was the Christians, wasn't it? Well, actually, boss, they're living in peace, minding their own business, working hard with their hands so they have something to share with others, they're contributing to the community. <laughs> they're feeding the hungry, they're supporting charities, they're collecting jackets for the winter for people who don't have jackets, they're helping rehabilitate broken lives, they're mentoring guys from the mission, they're clothing the poor, they're paying their taxes. They're obeying the law. We busted in, like you said, we busted into one of their gatherings, and guess what we found? They were praying for you and for Rome in the kindest of terms and with the utmost respect. And Nero says, they were praying for me? Silenced. Doing good? Devoted to charities? Minding their own business? Contributing to communities? Abstaining from their lusts? Living models of virtue and self-control? And love, loving one another? And praying for me? The persecutor? The godless pagan Nero? By your good life, silence those who oppose you and the message, making the gospel attractive to the outside world. 
walking along the beautiful river in Romania on a missions trip with my pastor. Every pastor should have a pastor. I've had a pastor for 32 years. And I was with him. He's 6'6", and I'm not. (laughs) We're walking along, and I said something disparaging about a certain president who shall go nameless, but he lives in a big white house. (laughs) And my mentor stopped dead in his tracks, and I had to look up to the heavens. (laughs) And what I saw was not happy. And he said, who put him there? And I said, voters. (laughs) And he didn't look amused. And he would not move. And he just stood there. He said, really? Who put him there? I said, the Lord. He said, you may not like him, and you don't have to agree with his policies, but you will show Christian respect to the office of the presidency of the United States. And I said, yes, sir. (laughs) I didn't really say yes right away. It took me a little time. But, you know, he just held me to it. It's so true. You know, let it be said of us, folks, that Well, said of Daniel of old, you know, the young Jewish boy who was ripped out of the homeland and taken to Iraq, Babylon, modern-day Iraq, in about 600 years before Jesus. And this kid had a lot going. He was handsome. He had a lot of integrity. He was gifted. God helped him interpret dreams. And he rose up in the ranks of Babylon to where Nebuchadnezzar really liked this guy. And his co-workers hated him. Who is this Jewish boy taking our job? So they said, let's get rid of him. And here's what happened. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these guys said, we will never find any basis for a charge against him unless it has something to do with his relationship with that God. Daniel chapter 3. Could that be said of us? We got no dirt on him. The only dirt you're going to get if it has something to do with Christianity. Ah, now, that's where we draw the line isn't it? That's where we don't have to submit. Uh, That's where the midwives tell Pharaoh, when Pharaoh says, you know what, I'm getting a little nervous with all these Hebrews. They're everywhere I look, there's a Hebrew. One day, they're just going to rise up against us. So here's what I want you to do to midwives, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, speaking, command, authorized by God, apparently he's in that position. I want you, midwives, to let the girl babies live. But when you see it's a boy, kill him. And the midwives said, to authority, no can do. Sorry, Pharaoh. They didn't say that to his face. God blessed them for that. The soldiers refused King Saul in 1 Samuel 14 when King Saul's crazy. And he says, hey, everybody needs to fast. This is a sacred day out here. Jonathan, his own dear son, didn't catch word of that. They're starving. They're hungry. He comes upon a little honey. He dips his staff into it and touches it to his lips. And the king, crazy man, says, for that, you will die. He says, soldiers, kill him. And they said, "Ah, like that's going to happen. And God says, thank you. We don't all just bow down and do anything the government says when it comes to obeying the Lord. Esther, chapter 1, Queen Vashti, she refuses her husband, the king. The king says, honey, I've got a bunch of drunken slobs out here, my buddies. 
and they would like a, a woman of your stature and beauty to dance before them. You hear them all howling in the next room? Come on, babe. Layer off some of that and come out and do a little dance. And Queen Vashti says, uh, no. And I can hear the Lord say, you go, girl. <laughs> now, that's in the Hebrew. It's really hard to find. But <laughs> you, yeah. <clears throat> Please, doesn't matter. You're the husband. I'm the husband. God says, uh, she has a conscience, friend, and she serves me before you. Soldiers, yeah, they serve King Saul, but they serve him first. Peter and John get hauled in, and here's the quintessential proof text. They get hauled in by the God-given established authorities. We command you no more talking about this dead guy, Jesus. Done, or we'll kill you. And they say, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's eyes to obey you or him. For we cannot help to speak about the things we have seen and heard. And so that's it. When the government comes in and says, you know, bow down. You hear the music, boys? Worship the king. And they say to Nebuchadnezzar, we would rather be dead. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar says, that could be arranged. <laughs> and they get tossed in and God comes to their rescue. So in wrapping that point up, there's a lot of personal freedom as well in the Christian life, but there's no excuse to use freedom in a way that stumbles another Christian or brings dishonor to God's name by our perceived disregard for authority. Last point, patience and non-retaliation. Well, we've gone from difficult abstaining from lust to more difficult submitting to authority to most difficult non-retaliation being sweet when somebody is mean to you being kind and forgiving to your persecutors here's the paraphrase make a couple comments look peter says living out your faith in this world will mean various degrees of suffering here's what to do bear it well by imitating how jesus did it he left you an example he didn't resort to sinning or lying when under pressure. When they chewed him up and spit him out, he didn't retaliate. All that suffering and not one threat. Instead, he just entrusted himself to the Father who knows the whole story and will one day bring the truth to light and justice will be served. So now perhaps... Peter realizes how we might be feeling a little overwhelmed with this great call to Christian submission, to authority, like we're at the bottom of the world's totem pole. So he calls us to take heart, and he says, I want you to look at Jesus. You'll get cheered up if you think about him. If Jesus is God, and he can submit and have patience and live humbly, so can you. Now he says in your text, he left you an example. The word example, very interesting in the Greek. It is hupogramos, which literally is a model of the alphabet letters for children to learn to trace over. So the word example there actually is the word for this alphabet where you put it in front of your kid and say, this is how you're going to learn how to make an A and they trace over it. He says, Jesus is that pattern for you to trace your thoughts, your attitudes, your life, your response to Nero. Look at his response to Pilate. Look at his response to Herod. Look at his response to the guards who were mocking him while he was gasping for air, dying for the sins of the world. They're hurling insults at him. Let's just pattern yourself after him. 
Listen to this. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, you should have the same attitude as Jesus, who has God himself. He didn't take advantage of that fact for his own personal gain, but on the contrary, made himself a nobody, a servant in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, the Father exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, the Lord is not requiring something of you that he himself did not do. He's saying, look, I'm asking you to do what I did. Hello, I'm the God of the universe who stepped through a human womb and became a man. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. In him dwelled the fullness of deity in bodily form. In John chapter 14, when Philip says, show us God, and he says in verse 10, you're looking at him? If God can take what he took and did it in such a gentle and loving way, he says, my followers, trace this. Follow me. When somebody gives you a hard time, when somebody mocks you, this is the hardest thing in the world to do. Let your response in this unbelieving society where you're going to get flack be like Jesus. One, he knew his place as a servant. Two, he performed his duties faithfully in spite of opposition. And three, he patiently endured suffering and trusting all things to God and did it without retaliation. Your verse there, verse 22, that says no deceit was found in his mouth from Isaiah 53. It means nothing crooked came out. So Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane under all that pressure. And all the challenges that his life brought to him. Nothing crooked ever came out. He says, that's trace that when you're feeling the heat. The pressure's on you, nothing crooked, no sinning, no retaliating. Keep your heart sweet and clean of hate and bitterness and revenge. Here's what I hear him saying. Do not stoop to the world's level. You're related to God. He's outside. You're a foreigner to this life. You're supposed to act like a foreigner. You're not supposed to act like a native dweller. You're supposed to have a different way of handling. Now I'm going to tell you a story of what not to do with retaliation because it's hard and I have failed many times. And I'm going to tell you a little story. I was a substitute teacher in Los Angeles City Schools while I was in seminary. Do you know how hard that is? Do you remember how you treated the substitute teacher? <laughs> Unbelievable. So I was a sub. I was in PE class, and there was a 16-year-old who I was in my face about everything, trying to get my goat. goat. Well, he ended up getting my goat. And here's how it happened. I was fine. And I held up my hand and I said, whatever. And he saw my wedding ring. And he started in on my wife. Well, I counted a three. That didn't work. So I threw him down on the ground. And I sat on top of him. And I cleared my throat, collecting the spittle in my mouth. You know, I had his elbows with my knees. I was kind of rocking, and I was clearing my throat, collecting my spit in my mouth over his face. And I said, so you're sorry. <laughs> I won't make the sound that I did. The word is loogie, right? I was preparing to launch. And I said, just... 
This all can be resolved with one simple apology. And he said he was sorry. So I let him up. So sixth period came. And, a, and an aide came in with a note. And that said, the principal would like to see you after class. <laughs> so I made my way to the office and I sat down. And she said, you tell me that a sub sent from our district did not come into our school and throw one of our students down on the ground and threaten to loogie on him. <laughs> I was like, okay, what do I say here? So what was I going to say? Well, he started it. <laughs> I said, yeah, I did. I'm sorry. It was wrong. And she said, well, you will never be back at this school again. And inside I was like, yes. <laughs> but no, I'm saying this because it's pretty hard not to respond, isn't it? They said to Jesus in John 8, your mama, we know the truth. You illegitimate child. Oh, we heard the story. Mary was engaged, but they didn't do anything. And suddenly, she's going to have a baby. We heard it, but your mama. John 8, check it out. You know, if I were the Lord, one eyelash, boom, they would have been incinerated. <laughs> Just one little, beep, gone. <laughs> oh, James and John, the Samaritans are saying we can't cut through their property. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? And the Lord says, what do I have in common with you guys? Right now, nothing. You vengeful, crazy people. What did he do? They called him, you're a drunk. Son of God, maker of the universe, pointed to the finger and said, you eat too much. You're a glutton, and you are drunk. Didn't fire back, did he? He said, I know the truth. I know the Father. The Father knows me. I always do what pleases him. Liar, loser, fraud, demon-possessed, illegitimate, law-breaking, blasphemer. And then they add, Injury to insult. They spit on him, strip him, beat him so you can't tell that he's a man. Nail him to the wood he created. And then he says, after all of that, Father, forgive him. What's our excuse? We got to trace that. Now, let me say, retaliation and self-defense are two different things. Christians kind of get this one mixed up. Jesus knows his marching orders is to suffer and die. He does not defend his life because his good work was to die. He wasn't killed for his good work. His good work was to be killed. So he's not defending himself because he is receiving a just beating, yours and mine. So he doesn't defend himself because he knows what he's called to do there. Lay it down. That's self-defense. To block a punch, to stop somebody from invading your home, somebody's aggressing somebody, it's heroic. It's biblical. We're crazy if you're thinking, oh, you know, somebody breaks into the house, so I'm going to be like Jesus and do nothing. My friend, Jesus is no pacifist. Read the book of Revelation. He's coming back in power and glory. What he does forbid us from doing is insult for insult. Revenge mean-spirited responses. Oh, yeah, I'll one-up you. 
He, for, he forbids you to get even. Non-retaliation is one thing. Self-defense is totally another. If you have the means to defend yourself legally or physically, it seems wise and in biblical keeping to make use of the rights God has given us to prevent harm or loss. But when it comes to, as I said, trading insult for insult and all of that or getting even or jumping on top of someone and threatening to loogie them, all of that is out. So a Christian, you know what? Join the military to defend the United States and its interests abroad. Hire a lawyer to defend yourself. Use a stun gun to protect yourself. Block a punch in the face. But you must keep your tongue from evil, your heart free from hate, and, and, and your hands clean of revenge. Instead of occupying Wall Street, let the Christ, the Son of God, occupy our hearts to endure suffering in a godly way. Do not retaliate. Leave that to God. Let's pray. Perfect timing. <laughs> <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It hit the spot this morning for me, Father, just to read these words, the world in which I live and we live. We just pray that you give us the ability to recall these truths, to trace our lives in the pattern that Christ left for us as an example. Common sense in many ways, Father, but so hard for us who are prone to wonder. So assist us now as we close in worship. Touch our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.